You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The Godfather, which came out in 1972 and was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Michael, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I do renounce him. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, Richard Castellano, Sterling Hayden, Al Lettieri, Abe Vigoda, and John Cazal. The genre would be mob family epic. At this point, it is virtually impossible to have a hot take on this film, so I'm not even going to try. It's about to turn 50, and you could easily make a case for it being one of the most important and influential movies of the past 50 years. Hell, past 100 years. To be fair, I have zero clue of a pre-Godfather world in movies or pop culture because I simply wasn't alive to see any of it. Because pretty much each year from the release of this film in 1972 through the remainder of that decade, the 70s, you had at least one iconic movie that everyone had to see and that nobody could stop talking about. And this movie pretty much helped kick off that renaissance. And just to get the significance portion out of the way, without the impact of Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Mario Puzo's best-selling novel, there is no Goodfellas, no Breaking Bad, no Heat, no Pulp Fiction, The Sopranos, Raging Bull, Training Day, The Dark Knight, think about it. Several of the best episodes of Game of Thrones, The Wire, The Town, Scarface, New Jack City, Miami Vice, Succession, The Untouchables, Prince of the City, Uncut Gems, The Departed. Name pretty much any modern property with a point of view from the criminal side and the DNA from The Godfather is in there. But what really helps make this such a classic and so endlessly rewatchable is the heightened drama of this post-World War II, mostly New York Mafia underworld setting and the relatable family of characters who inhabit it, mainly those Corleone brothers. First, there's Michael, who was our main protagonist, played by a 32-year-old Al Pacino. He's just gotten home from the war, and while he never envisioned himself getting immersed in the, quote, family business like his brothers, he finds himself not only drawn in by the attempt on his father's life, but realizing that after his experiences in World War II, he's actually a born leader and a better strategist than even his father, the Don himself. We witness this for the first time in what might actually be my favorite sequence in the entire film. But I'll get to that a bit later. You're going to search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me then. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me, then I'll kill them both. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what 
are you going to do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come here. You're taking this very person. Then there's Sonny, played with barrel-chested bravado by Jimmy Kahn. He seems on the surface like a born leader and that he's charismatic, charming, and clearly a born bruiser who could naturally intimidate anyone who looks at him the wrong way. Of course, he's also an impulsive hothead, as he never really thinks more than one step ahead. As his father stays incapacitated and Michael has to flee to Sicily, Sonny basically is leading the family, but with only one thing on his mind, all-out war. Escalation is pretty much his only move, and against the advice of his consigliere slash adopted brother Tom, Sonny just keeps ordering hits on the Barzinis and the Tatalias. And this escalation gets so out of control that it eventually draws him to his own brutal demise. And that brings us to Tom Hagen, the aforementioned consigliere played by Robert Duvall. He's the adopted brother, obviously not Italian, thus limiting his pull with others in this world. He's more cerebral than the other Corleone boys, and he's clearly someone who always feels like he's on the outside looking in towards this very powerful family. Tom is always thinking, rarely reacting, and he earned his position as the chief advisor to the Brando's Don. And thanks to his tentativeness, the very position that he holds feels very tenuous, especially once the Don starts to lose his power. Both Sonny and Michael are relatively dismissive towards Tom, just adding more and more weight to his demeanor. And this is never more prevalent than during a key moment in the second half of the movie when we see Tom sitting by himself, having a drink, and with nothing but dread on his face as it has fallen upon him to inform his father, Vito, that his son Sonny has been murdered. As Vito walks up to him to have a drink himself and asks him what the big news is, wow, Tom's eyes are just trying to say it before it even comes out of his mouth. Just an exemplary piece of acting on Duval's part. My wife is crying upstairs. I hear cars coming to the house. And Sigliere of mine. I think you should tell your Don what everyone seems to know. I didn't tell Mama anything. I was about to come up and wake you just now and tell you. She needed a drink first. Yeah. And now you've had your drink. They shot Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. And that brings us to Fredo, played by the late, great John Cazal. Cazal's life was tragically cut short early in his 40s, but he left us with a legendary run acting in only five movies, but five amazing movies, each featuring great performances by him. Yes, Cazal's Fredo has a much more prominent role with an even greater performance coming in Godfather Part Two a couple years later. But even with more limited screen time this time around, we get to know his Fredo as the quintessential middle child of the family. He's silly, cowardly, and often treated as an afterthought by others in the family as a result. Do you know who I am? I'm Mo Green. I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. Wait a minute, Mo. Mo, I get an idea. Tom, Tom, you're the conciliary, and you can talk to the Don, you can explain... Just a minute. Don is semi-retired, and Mike is in charge of the family business now. If anything to say, say it to Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. 
This is never more obvious than in what I would consider likely the most frustrating moment in the movie, when Don Vito is shot several times in the back at that fruit stand, slinking on the ground in pain, and we watch helplessly as Fredo himself watches helplessly, pulling out his gun but only clumsily dropping it on the ground. He goes to his father's side, lying on the ground, and mainly just stares at him, barely able to raise his voice. He's just frozen there, scared and incapable of taking any kind of consequential action. Fredo is as much of a tragic figure as his three brothers, and we're just starting to see the early buildup to this in part one. These guys just feel like a real family by the time the credits roll. And of course, they're not alone, with Brando, the legend himself, delivering a towering performance, for which he won the Best Actor Oscar as the patriarch of the family, Vito. Talia Shire is also very effective as Connie, the beleaguered kid sister of the Corleones, who seems set up to be a perpetual victim, yet finds more agency in future films from this franchise. Writer-director Francis Coppola is never asking us to implicitly like these characters, but he makes a valiant effort towards helping us understand them. And of course, he doesn't do this alone. He co-adapted this screenplay with the author of the massively popular pulp novel which it was based on. The author was Mario Puzo. And of course, there is no shortage of quotable dialogue along the lines of the following. I like to drink mine more than I used to. Anyway, I'm drinking more. That was uttered by Brando's Vito later in the movie, and it's a very telling moment to his son, Michael. Vito not only knows that his days are numbered, but he's also realizing that Michael is past the point of no return in this world. Michael is a boss now. His life's in danger, and the only real way out is through more treachery and violence. There's just no coming back from this, and all Vito can really focus on is enjoying the remaining family that he has left, which he advises Michael to do as well. And of course, this all leads to a climactic finale where we witness his son Michael definitively not heeding his advice as we see Michael at the baptism of his godson, pretty much just robotically going through the motions as we can see that his mind is actually just focused on eliminating his competition. And we see all of this via montage of various other bosses being brutally murdered, presented to us elegantly with the help of cinematographer Gordon Willis and fluid editing from William Reynolds. Everyone involved brought their A-game to this production, and 50 years later, it remains a work of art with a tragic message at its core. And that brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. There can only be one choice for this category, and it just happens to be one of the top five most iconic movie themes ever. Yes, that would be The Godfather Waltz created by the legendary Nino Rota, the acclaimed Italian composer who had already made a big name for himself by this point, crafting scores throughout the 50s and 60s for some of Italy's most brilliant filmmakers, including Federico Fellini and Franco Zeffirelli. He did an amazing score for Romeo and Juliet. Rota's work for Coppola on this film and Godfather Part II would actually end up being the only two American films that he conducted scores for, and he received Oscar nominations for both, eventually winning for Best Original Dramatic Score two years later for Part 2. To refer to the melody at the core of this theme as simple seems to be underselling it, but it is in fact quite simple. It's mainly led by seven alternating notes on a mandolin, followed by similar notes being repeated via oboe. It's meant to elicit romance, family, regret, and nostalgia all at once. We hear this theme throughout the movie, and literally over both the opening titles and end credits. For me, the most memorable time that it is used has to be at the end of that opening wedding sequence, as we watch the traditional father-daughter dance, Vito waltzing with Connie, who's the bride. 
Even though we are already more than 25 minutes into the runtime of this epic, more than three-hour epic, it's a supremely elegant table setter for what follows. That brings us to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, you could make an iffy case that both Talia Shire and John Cazal are underutilized in this movie, as they are the more background Corleone siblings. But honestly, their characters are genuinely fleshed out and given prime importance in the sequels. Cazal's Fredo in Part 2 and more so Shire's Connie in Part 3. So I would be hard-pressed to say that either actor is actually wasted in this movie. It was my fault! Where is Sonny, please, it was my fault. Sonny, it was my fault. I hit him. I started to fight with him. Please, Sonny. I hit him. So he hit me. I... Okay, I'm just, uh, just going to give the doctor to come take a look at you. Sonny, please don't do anything. Please don't do it. Okay. <laughs> What's the matter with you? What am I going to do? Want to make that baby an orphan before he's born? <laughs> huh? Hmm? And that brings us to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the senior moment that best describes this movie. For such a seminal film, it is quite daunting to level it down to just one key moment, so I'm not even going to try. I'll just select my two personal favorite scenes in the movie. One revolves around Sonny, just barely, but it does. And the other one revolves around Michael. Now, bringing us back to Sonny. His impetuousness eventually gets the better of him. Sonny just cannot help but be drawn out by his abusive, scumbag brother-in-law conspiring with the competition to have about a dozen goons with Tommy guns waiting for him at an isolated Long Island toll booth, where they literally turn Sonny into Swiss cheese. In what has to be, I would say, among the top five greatest death scenes in the history of cinema. Just brutal. And now, of course, there's Michael. As I alluded to earlier, there's a key sequence just about an hour into this epic when Michael's visiting his father at the hospital and finds him recovering in his room alone with no police protection, as he was supposed to have. Michael suspects that the police might actually be helping a rival family murder his father, and then he springs into action. Nurse, wait a minute. Stay here. Sonny, Michael, I'm at the hospital. Listen, I got here late. There's nobody here. Nobody. No, no, no. Tessio's men, no detectives, nobody. Papa's all alone. I won't panic. I'm sorry, but you will have to leave. Uh, you and I are going to move, move my father to another room. Now, can you disconnect those tubes so we can move the bed out? That's out of the question. You know my father. Men are coming here to kill him. You understand? Now help me, please. He calmly but quickly investigates by talking with the nurse and making a couple of calls. Then he finds the local baker visiting his father, just to pay his respects. Then he enlists him and the nurse to move his dad to another room. 
and he then decides to stand outside at the front entrance of the hospital with the baker. After he hikes up both of their collars and has them both stand upright with one hand in a side pocket, so they each look like they're carrying, and they both look like thugs standing guard. And the ruse works as a mysterious car slowly drives by with mysterious men in the back, possibly with guns. And then the car pulls away as Michael stares coldly at the driver, motioning that he's about to pull out his gun. However, the most telling moment comes right after this as the baker, who's now relieved that this whole tense situation is over. I mean, he was just coming to visit the Don. He didn't know that he'd be roped into this scheme to scare off other guys trying to kill the Don. Well, he's now relieved that this whole tense situation is over. He attempts to light himself a cigarette, but the baker, his hands are just shaking. He can't do it. But not Michael's, though. He is as cool as a cucumber, and with his steady hand, he lights the man's cigarette. From this point on, it's obvious to both the audience and Michael that he has now found his calling. But at what cost? And now the final category. That would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Coppola, Coppola, Coppola. Seriously, Francis Ford Coppola was likely the 12th choice to direct this epic. And for at least half of the production, he had legit concerns that he was about to be fired, as he had at least two or three folks, including one editor, working throughout the crew trying to sabotage him. No joke. He fought hard to have Pacino cast as Michael, and also to have Brando cast as Vito. He put up with no shortage of prima donna behavior from Brando on set, including making sure that cue cards were strategically placed everywhere for the star, since Brando apparently could never be bothered to remember his own lines of dialogue. Needless to say, it was a tough shoot, and the rest is just Hollywood legend. At the time of release, The Godfather was the highest grossing film in history, only to be supplanted a few years later by Jaws, but still pretty impressive. It also won Best Picture that year at the Oscars, and even though Coppola did not win Best Director that year, this film helped cement his place as one of our premier filmmakers. You could make a strong case that his success with this relatively risky and somewhat expensive project at the time pretty much paved the way for several of his fellow film school buddies to be given similar opportunities from the major studios in the 70s. Some guys you might have heard of named Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, De Palma. For helming one of the greatest films in the history of cinema, Francis Ford Coppola is your MVP. The studio didn't want Brando. And, oh, no, they, 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 I was told by the president of Paramount Pictures, Francis, Marlon Brando will not appear in this movie, and I forbid you, as president of Paramount, to bring his name up again. <laughs> and at which time I fell on the floor in a faint, and I, like, had a, you know, I did it deliberately, and they said, what? I said, well, if I can't even talk about it, then how, what kind of director am I? He's okay, you can talk about it. <laughs> My rating for The Godfather is five stars out of five. There is currently a special anniversary re-release in theaters right now. And if you have the chance to see it on the big screen, by all means do so. Happy 50th to The Godfather. And if you're not able to see The Godfather in theaters, it's still available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another familial review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.